0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, Aim coach, and this is episode 99. Yes, I am one away, we are one away, from 100. And it'll be a little bit of a gap because I will be working on a special episode for episode 100, and I'm not super consistent and super perfect about getting these out every week. But I try to stay on top of getting out a lot of content on the Weekly Word podcast almost weekly. But yes, there's definitely gaps where it's two weeks, sometimes even three weeks. But then I try to pump out a few at a time to just sort of brain dump and answer emails and go through what I call um, the section of being an athlete, which brings me actually back to now on this 99th episode to where we've come from what this podcast used to be and where it is now and also how i've clarified and grown around that aspect of what i want to communicate on this podcast and yes i use those words specifically i have grown Um, over the last two three years a lot has transpired in my life and my understanding of what this ultra endurance life really is And many of you who have listened to this from the very beginning have gone through that transformation or seen that transformation with me as well, where it was more fact-based and just data and input and coaching advice into more a meaningful conversation about what ultra endurance training and endurance racing and events and outcomes truly are and what they can mean to us. And I've been trying to capture that in some more thoughts because I'm also trying to clarify more my bigger picture vision for what I want to do with this coaching um, business, for lack of a better term, but what my passion truly is and where my message truly lies because I'm in the incredibly fortunate situation that I get to do what I love to do every day, which is coach and communicate a lot of this information, I love the podcast. I'm excited to do the podcast and I feel really off when I don't get to do the podcast, when my world keeps me so busy that I didn't get a chance to sit down and reflect and talk and uh, dive deeper into what really means a lot to me and how I connect to this sport of endurance athletics. And around that, a lot of it has come together over the last two, three weeks a because I did that talk at Google about uh, a week and a half ago, and I was trying to clarify and capture more the aspect of what I look to communicate with this and that is how we all went pro in something other than sports and then athletics. And so here we are, we have busy lives, our world is moving so fast, and of course we have our number one priority in family and loved ones. But yet, we want to be able to express something of ourselves, be able to do something that challenges us, that challenges our soul, that challenges our mind, our spirit, and really brings forth the best version of ourselves. And that's where it came to me with regards to, yes, we all went pro in something other than sports, other than athletics, other than ultra endurance athletics for sure. But we also want to express this best athletic version of ourselves. This part of us that we know still has something to um, unfold, to grow, to sprout, to um, discover what we're curious about. And for many of us, like I've talked about before, it's an opportunity to spend some time inwards on a busy, um, in our busy lives, where all those inputs from the outside are constantly tapping our senses and our energy. And to every day, and especially longer on the weekends or some of the times and windows of our lives that we can actually train longer hours, especially when we're getting ready for endurance events and ultra endurance events, is that we have time to go inwards, have time to reflect, to have time to think and download and exhale and listen to our body. And again, create that potential connection to our soul and to our deeper consciousness. And here, every now and then, every so often, and hopefully more and more frequently, what our spirit, our soul, our higher self, our consciousness is truly telling us. And it takes us to a place usually that we feel so invigorated, alive, creative, productive um, when we come back from an immersive, endurance training session now of course we can get that when running in the concrete jungle of course we can get a little bit of that when running on a treadmill or so forth or training indoors on a bike or even swimming but there's something extremely powerful and connected and alive when we're outdoors in nature immersed into you know what is our true evolution being outdoors alive, um, alert, um, connected in nature. And so that's where this podcast sort of has evolved into how to create that connection between we all went pro in something other than athletics, but then also yet we still have this best athletic version that we can bring forth and that I believe will bleed into our day's with the other legs of the stool, with the other legs of the priorities of our day, which is, of course, family and career slash work or professional life. Um, and, And even in some cases, as we've talked a lot about other components of our lives that are also important and create maybe a stool leg or maybe a partial leg with regards to community or church or volunteer or service and such. And so some of the thoughts I've jotted down is I believe that through ultra endurance training and events, we tap into something deeper in ourselves, that the training and daily immersion allows for our best athletic version to come forward, to shine. This frequent connection into ourselves, the process of going inwards allows for a stillness and a reflection to take place. And that, by the way, on a side note, daily stillness to get your body and mind to be quiet for a moment so that your spirit, so that your soul, so that your consciousness has an opportunity ever so briefly to express itself or to blossom for a moment or for the portal to be opened or for it to just sit there in quietness and be an equal playing partner with the mind and body. That is a very, very powerful and important thing to be able to learn and do, and I think we all have the power to do that. It allows us to be present, alive, can blend into the rest of our lives and days in order for us to live in the truth of who we really are, our best version of ourselves, and the endless growth and learning that comes with it. Ultra endurance is a doorway into that higher self into that ability to display the best version of ourselves. Sort of where I am right now with that, and I know, I know I might be losing many of you on this conversation, um, but I'm also not shy about this being something I stand for and how I would like to, in general, differentiate myself and my coaching and the coaching I go about with regards to all aspects of the coaching. Um, what I mean by that is I know my better half and Emily and with her nutrition work and her work with athletes as well, exactly on the same page here. And we talk about this in our spare time and free time with other than when we're busy with four kids, but that we're constantly believing and loving and caring and showing and living this this belief this understanding that there is a contribution to be made here it's not the only path and i've talked about this a lot too over the years of the podcast it's not about that this is the only way to tap into something like this but we here we have an opportunity to do it all and i know that's a dangerous game to play And that's why I have that mission statement on my website. Helping endurance athletes, which all of you are or are curious to become, enjoy the gratification of setting a goal. Yes, I used goal for a reason. Because in the beginning when we're starting out with this, we're all still setting goals. On the outer boundary of what they could imagine was possible. Yes, it's far away. It's on the outer boundary Can I really do this? Does it create fear? Does it create curiosity? Does it swing my legs out of bed in the morning in order to take on the training and the difficulties of this adventure? Does it help me do that? Yes, it has to. On the outer boundary of what they could imagine was possible and working with them systematically, that's called coaching, right? In a systematic way, something where you the athlete, and I, the coach, can program the next two weeks, the next six weeks, the next few months, so that you can systematically, via a methodology that you recognize, you as the athlete, because then it's not so dependent on what I prescribe, that you also understand and grow and can sort of grow with, because you're systematically applying that and pursue that desired outcome. Now it's a desired outcome, it's no longer goal because we are growing and learning along the way in a healthy, injury-free, and sustainable manner. Sustainable, the key word there, I chose that for a reason because I wanted to be sustainable with your family and with your work and career. And I believe there's a space that we can explore this inner child also important, inner child, um, of exploring what we are capable of, exploring that best athletic version of ourselves. I am very, very convinced of that. And I have a passage to read in a moment why I'm so convinced of that. So this is about finding your athletic mission statement, training towards your North Star, towards that personal mini athletic mission statement and going through that dance of difficulty and perseverance and clarity and priority, prioritizations and intentions and deliberate training to achieve everything that you've put your mind to. That's what these first 99 episodes have grown to, have migrated to, have matured to, From just talking training insights and inputs and data and things like that to more understanding the lifestyle and the longevity and the connection and the beauty of what endurance can be if we approach it with the proper mindset, if we look to balance it into our busy lives. And that's what I want to share that's what i've spent 99 episodes soon 100 episodes of an hour to 2 hours a week maybe not quite but you know in this case let's say hour and a half for 300 no yeah no 100 times 1. 1.5 is 150 hours of talking ultra endurance training but also in talking ultra endurance lifestyle mindset A deeper connection to it nature immersion how to balance the three-legged stool how to make this all work to bring out the best athletic version of ourselves and that's where it's gone to from episode 1 to 99 it's grown to the best athletic version of ourselves and how that ties into the best version of ourselves. And there is a correlation, there is a connection. And it might not be a big, huge connection for some people, for others, it might be a big connection for sure. But there is a connection. And that's what I truly enjoy talking about on this podcast, Um, how we all went pro in something other than athletics, how we bring out the best athletic version in ourselves, how to train versus just exercise, how to have the right mindset going into endurance and ultra endurance events and training, how to avoid the pitfalls and the mistakes and the bad choices and not necessarily not allowing or not letting you make those mistakes as well because many of us learn best like that, but just to pick up the low hanging fruit on some of those. Because there's always learning that afterwards we say, eh, well, I could have gone without the pain of having to experience that. We want to save the learning and the big mistakes and really growing from that, from truly experiencing and making the bigger ones ourselves and going through that process. But if I can be or any of us can be of assistance in avoiding some of the no-brainers, like I said, low-hanging fruit, that's the ideal but then also it's about sharing. It's about sharing everything that has been passed on to me. I, I, sure, I did a lot of this training and this time and mistakes, and I grew these skills over time, and I invested a lot of it, not even knowing at the time I was investing into skills that I would later on be so um, adamant and interested in passing on. It's more a question of that I had mentors And I had coaches and I had people and experts and friends and other athletes around me. And we were constantly sharing and learning and growing and mentors passing little tidbits on to me because they were a few steps ahead in their endurance journey and growth and maturity than me. And then I had coaches who openly shared and cared and passed on a lot of knowledge to me and that's all i'm doing with this is continuing to pass that on free not with some premium content not with some um membership but instead free because all this should be passed on it all should be shared openly it's what i care about i want all of you to have that experience of endurance, training, and events and adventure to yourselves and that you can experience it for yourself without having to pay money or to be lost in how to at least go about navigating it. I had an athlete just the other day, he's pretty new and he's done a variety of, he signed up for a variety of events and he wasn't sure how to go about his season. And I said, you know, what is it you want to do to have fun? What will keep you excited? What will, like I said earlier, throw those legs out of bed in the morning and get you out of bed to train, right? And he said, well, I want to definitely learn how to do a 70.3 and I to love to do an Ironman I don't know if I should ask you this, but I also really want to do these like longer treks and hikes like in the John Muir Trail and then hopefully sometime in Asia and in Bhutan and do Kilimanjaro and do these different locations. And I said, now we're getting somewhere. This is exciting. And if Iron Man and 70.3 is progression and a vehicle and a motivation, remember just a short-term motivation to keep you on the path towards your North Star, towards the new you, to to who you want to be. Well, that's great because those adventures, hiking and long treks and different cultures and different people, will help you grow and mature and open your eyes to the world completely differently than a 70.3 or an Ironman will. And I'm not knocking those events because many of us started our endurance journey with those events. And some of us might be busy and life and children and events at home and professional work and career might not allow us to take big steps away. So the triathlon world of 70.3s and Ironmans are great for that, right? But don't give me the anything is possible because more is possible, (laughs) way more is possible for you. And yeah, so that's that's what the weekly word podcast is about. And I know that's a long intro, but it's just sort of to highlight what this is. It's about exporting knowledge not importing knowledge. It's about exporting and sharing and getting as many people involved into this connection to their best athletic version of themselves in this busy world of ours and where we all went pro in something other than athletics. And hopefully, hopefully, and I've already had luckily enough experiences and um, emails and people who've talk to me at races who truly appreciate what we talk about here and if that's only a couple of you that's plenty for me because a couple of you um, having that uh, beautiful experience in nature and um, adventure and outdoors and going inwards is worth it for me all right so what are we going to talk about this week on the 99th episode of the weekly word well i'm going to um share that passage that I was reading um, in a book recently about being an inner child and connecting with that um, when we run, and I was excited to share that with all of you, and then I dive into some 50k race observations from my race last week, and uh, even while I was running, I was like, oh, I got to remember that because uh, this is quite um, helpful to keep in mind when doing a 50k or longer, 50 mile, 100 mile and then i talk a fair amount about clarity of purpose this week that's sort of in the being an athlete section and around that it's more about um, creating a north star creating an intention creating a mantra creating a mini athlete um, athletic mission statement and i dive deeper into that and then the rest of the episode is basically (laughs) email questions Um, a lot around swimming Um, Two questions in a row brought up some swimming, and I I get pulled in different directions on some of them, but uh, I hope that's helpful. And then I dive into also running cadence and uh, some myths and truths around that, according to me. And I hope you enjoy this 99th episode. I'm reading a book recommended to me by one of my athletes, and it's called Running and Being, The Total Experience by Dr. George Sheehan. And it's about 30 years old, um, if not even longer, 40. And it's about a philosophical perspective of running and how Dr. George Sheehan in his runs went deeper and what it meant to him from a spiritual experience. Um, What I like in it is that he uses the terms inner landscape a lot, um, nourishing the soul. um, And he explains it in a very... uh, detailed way on why running has such a deeper connection to us. And I've already come across a few paragraphs and and passages that really hit me like, wow, he's really actually explaining what I see and what I feel and what I try to uh, communicate a lot. Um, But he does it a lot better and using a lot more quotes of other authors and famous poets and so forth. But and this one really sp- stood out because it talks about that inner child. And I wanted to share it all with you. And that I su- and that I suppose is why I run and find there the authentic life. First, be a good animal, said Emerson. And in running, I am that animal, the best animal I can be doing what I'm built to do moving with grace and rhythm and certainty that I seem to have possessed from all time. And there I find joy. Kierkegaard was mistaken in that. There is no joy in ideas. Joy comes at the peak of an experience and then always as a surprise. I cannot have joy on demand. At best, I go where I've felt it before. And that is mostly on the road moving at a pace I could hold forever and my mind running free so that I am in this alternation of effort and relaxation of systole and diastole and then I have that fusion where it is all play and I'm capable of anything I become a child it will not surprise you that the thinkers believe that our journey is back to our childhood One mystic wrote that man's perfection and bliss lay in the transformation of the bodily life to joyful play. Norman Brown declared that man is that species of animal which has as its immortal project the recovering of its childhood. I will not apologize, therefore, for an activity that makes me a child. An activity that takes me away from women and business, pleasure and passion. An activity that has its own meaning. An activity without purpose. Excuse me, that says, an activity that is its own meaning. An activity without purpose. So I run in joy, and even afterward, there is a completeness that lingers and is even restored in the long hot shower. I am away, not in the mind, but in its warm, relaxed, tingling, happy body, the feeling of running still in my legs and arms and chest. I am still enjoying who I was and what I did that hour on the road. Some of you may wonder that a life can be felt so completely in the absence of other people. I wonder that myself. It goes against everything I have been taught everything that went into the preservation of our culture. But I am who I am and can be nothing but that. Do not mistake me for someone else, said Nietzsche. Do not mistake me for a listener or a citizen or friend. And when I go get that look in my eye that says I'm going away, do me a favor, let me go. Again, that's Dr. George Sheehan out of Running and Being. I'm just getting started in the book and it's really, really profound. Um, Some of the things I'm sort of missing (laughs) because I'm not always in a good um, open mind space when I'm reading it. So it takes me some time to sort of open up my mind and my thoughts and be willing to sort of take in different perspectives but that passage really stood out because it reminds me that yes running brings us that joy of a child that when we're out there just free and feeling good and connected and alive that that can really bring us back to what made athletics and just childhood so fun we didn't combined athletics with a chore or training we combined athletics with just pure joy and what again we're meant to do and how we're wired and to just go inwards and let go and let the body and its functioning and its rhythm take over so i hope you are okay with me sharing that like i did so how'd the 50k go well It was a challenging day, not because of uh, fitness or anything like that, but we've had a pretty wet Northern California winter and I think all of California is pretty saturated with rain. And so, of course, rain all day on the 50K race. Um, Lots of streams, lots of muddy fields, lots of submerged um, shoes in streams and water and puddles and mud. Uh, lots of rain lots of just wet everything lots of streams running down the trails um, lots of river crossings Um, so the full gamut of a rainy um, um, overflowed uh, uh, race experience but I mean it's a 50k it's a, a famous one out here way too cool 50k it's on the western states course it's um. One with a lot of history, a lot of speed, and a lot of talent. Um, and again, it's since it's on the west um, in this community of Western states and out of Auburn, and a race director that also um, does a variety of other <coughs> uh, 50 milers and 50 Ks in this area and has a lot of Western states experience and so forth. It's just a really solid good event. It's the 30th anniversary of this 50k. So just imagine how old um, and how early on in the in the trail running world, this one came across way too cool out of cool California. Um, So um, good day, I went into it with a specific strategy uh, to test my um, ultra running fitness, because again, for Alaska man, um, and the training I'm looking to do for that, I want the ability to run well and be even stronger in June, of course, on trails, but have a good solid trail running, um, elevation gain, fitness, dirt fitness, long running fitness. And it might not have been as ideal as I usually would do for a buildup for a 50K or 50 mile or 100 miler um, in a season. but. You know, we all know that life gets in the way and we all went pro in something other than athletics. But part of that too was just to validate where I'm at, a good check-in and feel good for, you know, four to five hours of running and travel and coast ride and being busy and Christmas break and so forth didn't allow the ideal buildup as well as this weather, but I'll take it for what it's worth. And I think for March, first weekend of March fitness, I was happy with how it went. I did a 425 on that course, nothing too spectacular, um, but nothing that I feel um, was not reflective of a good performance. And I went about it very specifically that um, we did an eight mile loop to start um, in one direction of the course. Um, And then you come back through the starting gate and area. So I wanted to just be real relaxed, but um, intentional with that first eight miles. Not super easy um, because also it's trail running and a lot of it's single track. And if you're caught behind a stream of people, stream, no pun intended, um, behind a bunch of people, you're stuck running out of your own flow and pace for a lot of it um, early on due to single track. And so And you're not going to really go too wide in some of these um, uh, muddy, wet uh, pastures as well as um, single track trails. So I started a little bit faster than I usually would for something longer. But uh, again, I was pretty confident that I could push pretty well for four and a half to five hours. And so ran those eight feeling good. Nothing crazy, but right on the pace and the schedule and the, um, the way I wanted to run it. And this was a new course. I've done the race uh, four times before, but the last time I did it, I think, was in 2010, maybe, or 2013, excuse me. And so they've changed the course a little bit, so this was all new to me. But um, again, knowing the area and knowing the past course and how much uh, that area is also familiar to me, I wasn't too intimidated by not knowing it. But got the first eight miles done, felt pretty good. And then it started descending down and to a long, you know, the remaining 23 miles. And that part um, seemed familiar. It was different on most of it, but uh, it was familiar enough that I knew how to run it well. And so then the focus was, okay, get me to mile 20, 20 20-ish, 21-ish, so that I'm coming back back towards the finish line back to um finishing this day and i have some energy to burn stored up and so um i went through some um low energy points around 14 to 16 not necessarily because of fueling or because of uh, hydration it's just because my body didn't feel as loose or connected as it did earlier and a long downhill which was probably from mile 9 to ooh, 12 um, really put a pounding on it and therefore it took me a while to settle into a rhythm and a flow of um, steady running and that part Um, Once it got back, which for me, it feels best when I'm climbing, when I'm running uphill, I feel the best um, because I can get sort of into a grinding rhythm. That's sort of my style. And uh, so until 16, I was sort of um, just trying to find and maintain form. And then I got to the top of a pretty steady climb, a three-mile climb. And then from there, it was probably a good six, seven miles of steady running on a certain ridge line without too much elevation gain or drop and then it was a couple of steeper inclines into the finish and some steady stuff so great course very runnable most of it very fast Um, there's guys who do this at um, uh, running around the course record i think is around 315 (laughs) yeah for 30 miles um, on dirt and then uh, even in rainy difficult conditions the winners did it I think in 330 335 so yeah running sub seven minute miles for just over 30 miles that's pretty impressive with that type of uh, mud and river crossings and elevation gain and climbs and so forth so but the the takeaway is a couple of things one a focused um eight 12 10 strategy in this case many 50 k's I usually say focus on a 10 10 10 strategy unless the course dictates it to be different which this course did with the first loop being eight and then sort of getting to the far end of the course at 21 um so that was the way I broke it up but usually I look around 10 10 10 the first 10 being comfortable on feel uh, the middle 10 being focused on form and deliberate and then the last 10 trying to push and really leave nothing out on the course and um, I'm always pretty specific to say to all my athletes as well as to myself um don't regret any of the miles that you left out on the course. Don't, uh, uh, when I cross the finish line, I want to have left regret and energy out on the course. Um, uh, there's one thing I really don't like, and I've done this before in the past myself, um, where afterwards I'm like, well, I could have done this, or uh, you know, I didn't feel it there, and therefore, I'd... no, I don't like that conversation with myself, and I don't like it when athletes have it. Like, If you had stuff in the tank, if you had energy, and if you wanted it more, you would have done more out there. You would have flipped that switch in your mind, and you would have pushed through. You would have persevered and and been more deliberate and and uh, and found that extra will and that extra push when you needed it so or when you wanted it don't don't start saying you had it after the race after you crossed the finish line and so i did my best to do that um I think I was through the marathon mark, which to me during the day, I was thinking, well, I'd be curious where my marathon is currently getting ready for Alaska Man, which is I think a 27 mile run on the back end of the the Iron Distance or similar to Iron Distance because that's a 2.6 mile swim and a I think 114 mile bike or something around there. But, um, and so felt pretty good about getting through my 26.2 miles. I think it was 330, 335 or something like that so um that went well and that validated the fitness for i want to where i want to be in early march um in order to continue to grow and my fitness and be healthy and get stronger for what will be um an aggressive alaska man push i mean i'm starting to get really excited on doing that type of adventurous triathlon um i've done a triathlon in a while and that'll be fun Um, But that being said, the one key takeaway of that 50K that I also wanted to share with all of you on the 50K sort of training plan that I'm sharing here is form Trump's effort in a lot of uh, ultra running. And what that means is if you can maintain good running form, your running form, the running form you envisioned and you practiced and you when you were training that you sort of settled into and you felt good about being light on your feet and relaxed shoulders and you know, just moving at a steady, relaxed, good form pace. If you can find that during your event, that will trump effort um, by a lot because maintaining good form over long periods of time is your fastest and most efficient output you can have in ultra running. And many get away from that. There were many, many athletes that day I passed where they're running somewhat crooked or somewhat tight, or I could see their lower back was bothering them after a climb or that their hip flexors were tight or that their knees were tight, or quads were tight for after a long downhill i could see that in their running form coming up behind them that they weren't able to settle back into their running form early on in those first eight miles when they passed me their running form settled in quite nicely and they were running relaxed and natural and light on their feet for that their own running form but then beyond that once fatigue settled in once the stress and the pounding and the miles settled in effort couldn't outdo good simple running form and that I kept getting validated on that by just maintaining my own running form my own relaxed light on the feet Um, posture, running form and turnover, it just came naturally. I didn't have to put a lot of effort into it. It just started allowing me to just close in on the field and continue to pass people mile after mile, person after person. And not because I was competing, but just because I was running my most efficient form in stride. And therefore the field came back to me in a lot of ways. Now, of course, there were still Thirty some odd people ahead of me, but you, you get the point. What I'm saying. Try to start thinking that when you get tired in your training, as well as those of you who are racing, run your running form. Allow it to take over because the longer the miles you have remaining in the race, the more running form will, re- good running form and your relaxed running form will reward you with plenty of speed and movement towards the finish line. And finally, the strategy with any type of ultra from a 50K to beyond is run the runnable sections. You have to be able to run the runnable sections. Those that are flat, those where the incline is very slight or manageable with good running form. Those where the decline is somewhat also not too much that you have to sort of hit the brakes and catch yourself too much but run the runnable sections. Hike, walk the sections that aren't really what you would define runnable. If it's too steep, if it's too technical, if it's too steep downhill, it's not runnable. You're just managing yourself up it or down it or through it. That's not runnable. That's not where you're putting your stride and your form and your light feet and your relaxed posture into place. You're just grinding and you don't want to necessarily do that yes before i say i like grinding but i'm able to grind up a a steady climb with good running form and of course this isn't anything too steep so as soon as you feel that the steepness gets to a point where oxygen consumption goes up too much and you're not running your form your runnable good form it's not a runnable section run the runnable sections and if you think about that and if you do the math of that over the distance and you take out the runnable sections so let's say this 50k this past weekend we did the math with the people i stayed with and when you took the runnable sections out the runnable part of the race of the 30-ish miles was about 26 miles so if all you're focused on is running the runnable sections and you give yourself permission to hike and relax and fuel and stretch and move differently through the non-runnable sections you will be successful if you run 26 of the 30 miles in a relaxed good form running and um, light on your feet and efficient in your uh, running stride you will be successful you will run to your potential because that's what you've trained running the runnable sections holding your form and posture running your energy output because rarely do we look at pace in the ultra running world and therefore think of that that's something really tangible to focus on when you're doing ultra run events or even racing them if you race the runnable sections and run them well, specifically, intentionally, with good form, you will be successful. So that was the 50K this past weekend. Nothing too uh, dramatic, but a good check-in. I'm happy with it. I'm happy with getting out of it pretty healthy and fit and having a good training week this week, the week after. And week one, heading towards Alaska Man. And um, got in a good four-hour bike today and um, not much running this week but started up with strength again and got in a few swims and it'll be good it'll be a good week this week and next week will be even better and start building a big engine for what will be a fun day in um, Alaska in late June this week I had my athletes go through an exercise and I'm still catching up with many of them because it's a um back and forth exercise with regards to creating that North star, creating that clarity of purpose and writing out a short description, two to three to four sentences, really crystallizing where we're heading, how we're getting there and what's important to us along the way. Let me explain that a little bit better. What it is you want to achieve, what will define successful what is the de- desired outcome? Right. That's first the the purpose, and then clarifying that purpose is then um, what we agree on together, coach and athlete, to keep you moving forward towards that outcome with clarity. And that is, you know, how will it feel when I've completed the event, achieved the outcome? What does success look like and feel like? And so. Clarity of purpose is more like I was saying, a North star that we can put that statement out there and it defines our training and it defines our path along the way. And the great thing about a good clarity of purpose is that like a North star, we never achieve um, the North star. We never get there and we can put events along the way But the clarity of purpose, as we continue to define it and and refine it, because after an event, we might need to refine it, um, it defines why we're doing this training, what it means to us, how it brings out the best version of ourselves, how we want to feel doing it. And when the times get tough, when the training gets tough, when we feel overwhelmed, when we get frustrated by our progress and so forth, these few sentences, clarify that intent. These few sentences tie me, the coach, and the athlete back together as a sort of something to point to more star of saying, remember, this is what we wanted to achieve. This is where we are heading, not along this other path, not with these frustrations over here, but this is where we're heading. And I, as the coach, am still writing training with intention and purpose and clarity towards that and towards that desired outcome along the way. And you as the athlete can look at that and say, this is what I signed up for. This is why I signed up for it, right? Whether that's an event or an adventure that we're looking to do, or you're looking to do, even if you're not coached, but having that mission statement, right? The athlete, a mini athlete version of a mission statement towards the event, goal, intention, adventure we are working towards, something very spe- specific that captures all that we need in a few sentences is key because it allows us on difficult days, it allows us on long, hard days, on cranky days, on rainy days to continue to point towards a North Star, to continue to be crystal clear on the best version best athletic version of ourselves because like I keep hammering us all on and I have to do it for myself I journaled about it this morning we all went pro in something else we all don't have unlimited time we can't screw around with this training sure there are easy training days but they have a purpose as well and we want to be very intentional and focused and deliberate with our training and a clarification, a clarity of purpose allows us to continue to fall back on that whenever we have questions or we wonder, or we, our motivation is low, when it captures our emotions, our relationship with our training and our desired outcome all in a short nugget. And that's what I'm giving a lot of my athletes on for homework. Now, the funny thing there is that many are way overwriting this. I'm getting paragraphs. And so we're going back and forth a little bit with regards to really narrowing it down to a simple two, three, four, five sentences that captures everything in a very specific nugget. And again, it doesn't need to have the justification, the why, why we're doing this all of it in there is just what we want to feel, why we're doing it, and what the desired outcome is of what we're looking to do. And what I mean by that is, again, how will we know we are done? How will we know we were successful? How will we know we're on the right path when we hit an event or two along the way towards that North Star? Some people, the clarity of purpose is the future A event, which is fine because they don't know yet what's beyond that. And that's totally okay. Again, having that A event out there and working deliberately, intentional, focused with clarity towards that, that helps. Others know that they're in this from a lifestyle, a long-term perspective, and working towards that North Star with many events along the way, continuing to discover that best athletic version of themselves, continuing to be curious on what the future will bring once I have achieved that future outcome. I got a wonderful clarification of purpose this morning from an athlete who described and talked about how she is looking forward to meet that new person, that fitter person, that more courageous person, that more confident person once she has completed her desired outcome. That's a great way to go about it too because again, it carries momentum, it carries momentum forward, it carries positivity towards and that curiosity towards meeting that better version of ourselves. That's a North Star. And the North Star, once we're there, can be moved, right? We never truly achieve it, but we get a better, better, clearer shot at it. We get a clear path towards it. And like I've talked about on previous podcasts on how the highway is very wide in the beginning. It's maybe a 10-lane super highway. But the further we go down our events and we are create new, better versions of ourselves and get on the far edge of what we deemed was possible and really create sort of a new version, a more courageous, brave, um, um, intelligent version of ourselves with regards to endurance training um, and our body and our reaction to training and and the effectiveness of it so forth that highway gets narrower and narrower and it goes down to a four-lane highway and a three-lane highway and so forth so that your clarity and the purpose and why you're designating this time every day all these hours every week becomes crystal clear Right. And that it can continue to get clearer and clearer. But the more we have that, the more deliberate and focused we are with our hour, our 90 minutes a day of training, not exercise, of training. Allows for everything to be, become a lot more effective, and we save time. Knowing why you're doing the workout, being prepared for the training and the workout, knowing what your desired outcome is and how it fits into that bigger purpose towards your north north star, allows you to execute it really well, really powerfully, um, with the desired outcome. Whether that's easy, whether that's a tempo, whether that's a, intensity and quality workout, whether it's drills, whether it's endurance, whether it's active recovery, whatever it is, but you know with a clear sense of purpose why you're doing it. And from there, you rack those together, many of those together, you will be successful, not just because of the outcome and the numbers and the result and the time, but because you feel really specific and successful on each workout you've done when we finish an intentional good purpose driven workout when we're truly training we can literally warm down close the books on that workout and walk away we don't have to think about if we did it right what we did how it fits into the bigger picture we can move on it saves us time we move on to our other task, work or family, because that part was crystal clear. That part, we hit the outcome, we hit the marks, we hit the desired um, outcome of that workout, and we move on. And so these exercises and this clarity of purpose is very effective for time. There's some work on the front end to, to narrow it down like this. But when you're busy at work, when you're busy or overwhelmed at work, when you're also trying to fit in the appropriate present time with family and trying to juggle all this, having this clarity of purpose, having that little mini athlete version of a mission statement to hold there, you can understand yourself better on how you fit in the training so that when you do skip a workout because life got in the way, guess what? It says it in that mini athlete version of myself. It says, yes, there will be days where my other, without, let's say the sentence is, without sacrificing time for my loved ones or changing my priorities because the event is getting closer or without them um, overlooking or not being fully present for my family and my loved ones. When, when something like that, a nugget like that is in there, it's okay then to let go for a day because you are continuing to stay towards that north star i want to balance it i want to maintain integrity of the three-legged stool and so with that three-legged stool there's going to be days where one drops off when one falls off and you're still on your path towards the north star we don't want to judge ourselves or be too harsh on ourselves with that clarity of purpose and not allow ourselves some of the flexibility that we all need because we all went pro in something other than athletics and sports and this event and we're curious we're looking to grow we're looking to get somewhere so it's been an interesting exercise to get this from many of my athletes because also it opens the door for me as the coach not only to for accountability and holding each other accountable and my training and how I'm writing it and I'm I'm putting some of the things in. But also the nice thing is it allows me to get a better understanding and perspective of the athlete in some cases. Many of them, I already know this. And I also have gone through the drill on many of my athletes of writing it out without their input first or sitting for a moment and thinking, What do I think their clarity of purpose would look like so that I can see if my coaching version is on the same level as the athlete version? Now, of course, I will adapt mine or my thoughts to the athlete version, and I hope if it's not ideal, we go back and forth a little bit, which I have with a variety of my athletes. But um, I also was specific for myself to make sure before I send that ask, that I also sit for a moment and look at and think about the athlete and read some notes that I take about every athlete and make sure, well, what would I think their clarity of purpose is? What will I think comes back in these next few sentences? And the good part of that exercise, again, has been good communication and learning more about my athletes, what's valuable and important to them. So again, we can work towards that North Star together and I can be an advocate, a reminder, a support structure towards, hey, remember you said this was the desired out. Let's not get away from that. Don't beat yourself up on that. We're still on that path. This race, this event, just because it didn't, perfectly hit all the marks. It clearly still attaches and identifies with that clarity of purpose that you wrote four months ago, five months ago, six weeks ago. And we're on the path. Look, you can point directly towards it, right? And in a lot of cases, it allows us to keep momentum and our eyes looking forward. Learning from the past, for sure. That's what coaching is as well. But eyes forward, towards the North Star. So if any of you want to go through that exercise, it's it's pretty helpful. But like I said, I what I ro- described before, that's what I look for. And it should only be a few sentences. But I think, and all of my athletes have sort of commented or hinted towards that it's been a very um, good exercise for them to clarify this. And some are applying it in other aspects of their lives. Because again, if we can take something like that um mini mission statement um into each leg of the stool and let's say for a year or for five years whatever what the north star intention is one of my athletes actually did this and he reminded me of it for the other things he wrote sort of a a flow chart of what his um, purpose is in each one of the um drop down um uh, uh, silos of each leg of the stool. And then they combined them, the the stool got combined up to who he is and his values and what he stands for. Beautiful exercise, I mean, and very helpful. And he's a newer athlete, so therefore I got to learn more about him and what his priorities are and what his importance is and his involvement with the community and the church and family and the importance of it again I can't stress enough. I want to work simply knowing at all times we went pro in something other than sports and knowing that we can hit our endurance outcomes and goals and desires despite that. That's where coaching and um, communication and a training plan comes into play. And that's why it all ties in like that. I received a question from one of my former athletes and I thought it would be interesting to dive into it because it is a current topic with many of my runners and triathletes as well. And actually, it was brought up in a talk I did uh, last week, a week ago from tomorrow at um, Google. And um, that was also um, about running and uh, in this case, running cadence. So, um, my question run cadence. I'm running in zone 2, easy jog at 10 minute mile on the treadmill, and I'm about at 165 to 168 cadence. And when I drop my pace to 830s, I'm at 175 cadence and a bit higher heart rate at 130 to 132. My wife tells me cadence is the number on is the number one determiner of marathon performance. What do I know your opinion? and how to increase cadence other than just do it. Thanks. So I really um, have changed over the years with regards to running cadence. And that is because I used to think that running cadence is a set number and um, that we all need to aspire to a certain number. But over the years and the studies I've seen and the myths that have been debunked is that running cadence isn't necessarily that important when it comes to running form. It is important when it comes to running speed, and so let's let's define that a little bit differently. So, most marathon runners, elite marathon runners, are running at a higher cadence for sure, and many of them are even in the the nineties. Um, so, let's just say, for example. We use the all-known 180. Well, many coaches and a lot of uh, the running experts talk about um, 180 cadence, which means 90 per foot per leg, excuse me, per minute. And so if you run the numbers there, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Many of the elites in the world are running at above, here's that, 190 steps per minute. So they're running with a quite fast turnover while having quite a big stride while having an effective push off. So as we deconstruct running cadence, it becomes important to keep in mind those three things. Turnover, cadence, speed, right, of the legs combined with a lot of real estate in their stride distance combined with their ability to push off their back foot, not rolling the toe, but good um, lever from the back of their stride. And so if you think about all those things, first, you need to have a good lever pushing off the back of your foot in the back of your stride in order to create the lift, lifting your knee and driving it forward while still leaning forward a little bit is what you want to envision Um, to bring the other leg forward from that back foot pushing off the left the lever and the lift bringing that knee forward in order for the foot to in a relaxed manner land under your hips and knees while leaning forward in order to not overstride so now we've just talked about the lever Power pushing off the back foot, along with the stride distance, that knee lifting and not necessarily bounding, but just in a relaxed way, knee lifting and forward while leaning forward, and the foot landing under you so that you are not overstriding, which often is confused with heel striking, but heel striking isn't necessarily a problem. Um, overstriding is. And that's a different discussion, and so forth. And the other thing you want to admit envision is that when you're in stride, which means your back foot is still just coming off the pavement behind you, and your front foot is in the air, driving forward, leaning forward, um, coming forward, when it is in that stride distance, max stride distance, the lower limb the lower leg your shin should be parallel to your other shin pushing off so that format should be quite parallel i know i'm going into some serious details here but when you look at runners on video pull up youtube and also envision yourself running Envision that your front shin at an angle under your knee, right? Because it's still coming forward, and your back shin coming off the pavement or with the foot, the forefoot still pushing off in the back under the um from the pavement, those two should create a parallel line, a parallelogram actually because our upper leg, our glutes and our quads and our hamstrings close out the top part of the parallelogram and the road, the ground, um, closes out the bottom part. (laughs) And I know, but it's something quite specific to focus on. And if you can start with those two things parallel, even with a shorter stride, it'll become way easier to lengthen your stride, right? So we want to first focus and make sure that when we're landing on our foot, it lands under us. We're falling forward a little bit. We're leaning forward a little bit. And then we lift, land, lever, lift. Land, lever, lift. Land softly. Land with foot under our knee and hips. Um, Land um, with our body leaning forward a little bit. Lever off that back foot, that's your lever, that's your pop, that's your bounce, that's your power, that's your um, calf muscle and your Achilles and your PF and all that helping you spring off that back foot. And the lift is the other knee coming forward, um, not high, forward and um, driving under you towards where you're running land, lever, lift. And so if you keep that stride aspect in mind, it's not going to look perfect in a video or in a mirror, but you envisioning it and you understanding what you want it to look like is a huge component. So now you're landing, uh, you're lifting and levering properly. You're working on your stride distance gradually. It's a very slow process. This takes months to get properly aligned that your stride distance is optimized for you while remaining parallel with lower, with both shins, basically. And then you want to start thinking of cadence. Once you have those first two in mind, you want to increase the turnover of that stride distance. And so there is no ideal number. Um, The world's best are quite high, but they perfected the Um, the lever and the stride length. And the idea that everyone should be running at a higher cadence is a dangerous one because then we focus on the higher cadence before we focus on the lever and the stride. And there's no formula that says the best cadence is to run at 180 steps per minute. Unfortunately, that is not a true valuable number. Um, you want to sure running at a greater cadence is good and it is something down the road you want to focus on but first you want to focus on the lift and the stride because if you don't you're landing heavy great you can have a super high turnover and still run slow and actually hurt your hips and lower back because you're landing heavy you don't have that that lift off properly. You don't have the stride distance. You're landing and overstriding with the heel in front of your knee and therefore heel striking and creating other injuries there. And then you're having shin splints and then you're having PF issues. And then you're having Achilles tightness and calf tightness and glute lack of engagement because your stride distance isn't big enough. All those things need to be Economized first and I say economized because we want to be efficient in what we are doing and how we are running and it might not be beautiful at first but the more you do it the more economical you become and more efficient in it you become so that then you can start tweaking cadence and stride length and so forth but that's what I would focus on there are definitely athletes of mine that I coach to push up their turnover and they quickly notice an increase in speed but the issue there too is that they can't maintain that turnover for a longer period of time because they didn't do the first two components and so they get frustrated when they're fatigued let's say off the bike and trying to run a fast half marathon or a marathon and they know higher turnover just even five steps per minute equals like 40 seconds per mile that's a huge component But if you can only do it for four, five, six miles and it fatigues you too much because it requires such a higher oxygen consumption and it's inefficient in your stride length and in your push off, your lever, well, then there's no point in working on that. And so that's where I've over the years have switched um, the approach. I used to focus a lot more on running cadence. Think about 88 to 92 foot strikes per minute right, per leg, and go from there. Well, that's just like talking about paces and heart rate. That's like saying, focus on 730 miles, and eventually you'll get efficient at 730 miles. No, instead focus on heart rate and watch the pace come down. And so similarly here, and from a technique standpoint, in my opinion, the way I approach it, and I've been asked here, is that I would focus on the push off, the lever, my foot pushing off and being able to get distance out of that. I do that a lot with toes and bounding exercises and uphill bounding hill repeats and a lot of barefoot running drills and stuff like that to make sure my foot is properly engaged and it's bouncy and the fascia is really helping in my running form. And then I also think about stride length and stride length while being consistent on the parallel lower legs, one in the air, one pushing off. And if I can keep those two engaged, then I like to start working on cadence. If I see my athletes running with good form and good bounce, then we start increasing the run turnover. But if you're landing heavy, like so many do, it's not going to lead you to much success with regards to run cadence. And so in this case, with regards to the question, yes, um, the marathon is all about run cadence at that high level, right? Um, Cadence is the number one determiner of marathon performance. It is, why? Because most of them have really good levers, they're getting good bounce, and they have really good strides, they have good form and good, so then, yes, for then, (laughs) it does come down to turnover and maintaining turnover. So I hope that helps. So I'm going to jump into this next question completely unfamiliar with it um, because I'm just going through an email folder of past questions that I haven't gotten to yet. And I want to make sure that I don't overlook them. Chris, thank you for the detailed training and coaching information you share with all of us on The Weekly Word. Your podcast has gotten me through many tough miles and hours and helped me take my training to the next level. That's awesome to hear. Short resume, I've run over 31,000 miles over the past 12 years, 25 ultras, 700 milers, and 14 marathons. Best trail 100 miler time is 1923. And a marathon PR of 246. Solid. Very solid. I was also accepted into Badwater this year and New York City Marathon. Nice. That's a busy 2019. Hopefully, you will be able to recover and get your body, adrenals, and mind um, back before um, New York because that's a tough window. Um, it takes a long time to get the body back after bad water. And in general, it takes a long time after ultra endurance events to get the body back, we can't um, overlook that. And there is no willing our body through fatigue of adrenals and of something deeper going on. And I think um, on a, this is a side note, of course, to this email, in general, we need to be very good about allowing ourselves to really take a break after an event. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, but really giving ourselves permission to take some time off and to allow our bodies to recover. And it's so frustrating because we feel so good after an endurance event, like the sense of accomplishment and the sense of fitness that comes with it sure we're achy and fatigued for a few days after but then we feel because of the accomplishment rush we feel how fit and how good all that um, distance and that day and that we're able to do that distance and, and, and feet in a day and we want to use that fitness to take it to another level to find out more what we're capable of but I look at that in two ways. One, we are setting ourselves up for a future that might, not always, but might require a long, long break because we are shot. Adrenals are shot. The body is shot. Physically, we're shot. And mentally, we're shot. And overtraining and chronic fatigue on a complete um, level like that is so frustrating and it can take years 18 months to years to really get out of that hole and many of us in the ultra endurance community don't pay enough attention to that now because we all went pro in something other than this sport life gets in the way and family and career and so forth so we many of us have natural breaks to the training volume but there's plenty of us who jump on it too quickly and create a huge hole for it. And we wanna truly avoid that and as well as be aware of that. Be aware that we might not notice how tired and fatigued we are because our will and our desire will mask us and will push us through that fog. And until that fog blows off, we don't realize how badly It was, we don't realize how much we missed the sun um, once until the fog blows away. But the second component there is when we finish a major endurance challenge or event or ultra endurance event, um, jumping just right into the next is twofold. One, it doesn't allow us to rebuild a proper training platform for it which is not ideal either way. We're reaching for more results off of the current platform we have. And by taking a break, we allow our body to reset. Um, also psychologically, knowing that we took a break and knowing that we're starting at the bottom of the pyramid again. Now, it doesn't mean we have to lay the same foundation, but we do need to go back down to the bottom of the pyramid and gradually build it up. Now. Does the race add to the foundation? For sure. Does it make a stronger, fitter, smarter for it? For sure. But taking time off allows us also to evaluate the training, evaluate what our new normal is, evaluate what our next outcomes what might be, and create a clarity around that and allows us to really reset. It's healthy for the body, it's healthy for the mind, and lastly, it's healthy spiritually. And why do I say it like that? Because I believe that if we apply it properly of a break and resetting, we take on the next event with the proper um, care um, and respect because we're starting from scratch. If we're using older fitness from a previous event that we wanted to apply to that event, our energy and our care and our deep joy went into that previous event. And we can't just take from that event and think we carry momentum into the next event of that care, fear, joy, expectation, um, um, uncertainty. We want a whole new experience. And it's important to separate experiences in order to really enjoy and fully embrace the next experience. So on a sidetrack there. (laughs) I don't do much as as much as testing as i probably should my last vo2 max test it was in 2013 well and he gives me his numbers that means nothing because that was six years ago i would hope you're a different person different athlete have different heart rate numbers and have a different vo2 max than six years ago so invalid i did a lactate threshold test using joel Friel's method in summer of 2018 tempo run and i found i had a lthr of 160 so therefore already nullifies the 2013 number which gave me a z2 of 136 to 143 um that's all great but again that was summer that's six months ago i hope you're not the same person the challenge for most is to understand and be willing to test I find it so interesting how often, how a majority of athletes refuse to test frequently. And I think it is truly in their nature with regards to psychology that they are concerned or worried about measuring themselves frequently because they know subconsciously they haven't done the work right, haven't done as much work as they needed to, what they committed to, what they said they were going to do, and therefore they avoid testing. Field testing you can do every few weeks. Why would you not field test? Why would you not want to constantly monitor, gauge, evaluate your training? The, The beauty of this is Um, you can do it on your own without anybody evaluating it and you learn so much as you're going along. In my big Ironman training years, I used to do a certain workout every week. And oftentimes during the week, I wouldn't even use any type of values. I wouldn't use Pace. They didn't have Garmins back then. I wouldn't use Heart Rate because I went on Feel. And so during the week, I just did Easy Volume with some intensity here and there just because the terrain or the day bike commute with a bunch of friends would allow it like that. But every weekend I did something measured and I would track that. I would literally chart that workout, the famous two, 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 um, over the course of the season. I would start in February and I would do it maybe once in February. And then in March, I would do it twice. And then in April, I would do it two or three times and then by may because we're coming closer to iron man season and you know a june Ironman or a july iron man race i would do it four times almost every weekend you know recovery week in there so i wouldn't quite do it every weekend so four or five times uh, three or four times a month depending on how many weekends were in the month and the 222 is a two hour swim. I usually would make it about a 5,000 yard swim. So it would only take me about an hour and a half. Um, but then a two hour bike, 35 mile bike, pretty controlled. And then always a 16 mile run. So two hours for me. And it was an eight mile out to a gate and eight miles back. And every week I had data heart rate compared to my paces, um, where I. Had energy where I didn't have energy, where I could push where I couldn't push, right? And so every weekend, I was finishing out my week. It was a Sunday always, um, with this more than a half Ironman running, less than a half Ironman cycling, more than a half Ironman swimming, and I would do the the transitions not aggressively where I would set up a transition area, but they would be out of my truck, and you know. Quickly eat something, quickly drink something in my transitions, change clothes, and off I go. Set myself, right? Set myself mentally. 2-2-2, one of my favorite workouts of all time. It still is. Um, as I prep for Alaska Man, I will apply the 2-2-2 a few times. And instead of running 8-8 eight and eight on you know, pavement in this case, which it was back then, um, I will run the altitude gain and up a mountain and back down like Alaska Man requires. But again, measuring and evaluating and getting data in order to track my performance. What did I do during the week that affected my Sunday? What didn't I do? How's my recovery hanging on? How's my progression month over month? How am I running now in, in May versus February? What are my heart rates in compared to pace? And then there's weeks where I would say, I'm gonna run very hard the first eight miles, or I'm gonna run a um, negative split or negative, um, in, Effort meaning the second half was much stronger, and I would always leave the bike the same. The bike effort always stayed pretty constant, and I would do that thirty-five mile bike always in around one fifty-five to two hours. Right, so that that was a constant. And the swimming, it is what it is. It's pretty much always a constant output, steady type of uh, a, a gauge swim for me. But that run, that run was so important. And so back to this email. I would. I, I question why you wouldn't want to test frequently. And you have a marathon this year in New York City and you're a 246 runner and you have bad water. So you want to test your, your unbelievable fitness. You want to grow month over month. Last month at 130 heart rate on this 10 mile run. This is something I still do. 10 mile run, I ran X pace. And this month at 130 heart rate, I run this Y pace for my 10 mile run. And you can just track it month over month. You see at the same low heart rate that your paces are improving. And that the lead up, you look at that data, how the week was, training journals. It's so important. I've been a bigger believer in Z2 training for the past five years. But over the past couple of years, I really struggle, struggle with getting into my zone two. Well, first off, I'll say right there, you don't know your zone two because it was last summer. Get your current zone two. I run in the mornings and some afternoons. I can ten miles at an average. I can run ten miles at an average pace of seven forty-five with a heart rate of one twenty-five. Great. Well, then, what are you doing now and next month? I just brought this up. It feels like I have to do a hard work to get into or beyond my zone two. Again, we don't know your zone two. Maybe it needs to be adjusted. Maybe it needs to be tested. Maybe Again, we're, if you're doing something like bad water and you have the opportunity to train for, and with the marathon and so forth, get tested. It's worth the investment to know that. And my perceived effort is much higher than my heart rate when attempting to do easy runs in Z2. Any thoughts or advice would be great. In most cases, that means fatigue. In most cases, that means that the body is fighting you to even get into zone two. And in most cases, that means either your zone two is off or you need some serious recovery. Because when I look at 31,000 miles over the past 12 years and 25 ultras, I'm curious how often you've taken two, three weeks off. How often you've taken a recovery week in your general training and how often you take a recovery day every week in order to make sure that your body is properly absorbing the training it's doing. And I talk about this a lot with so many aspects and so many athletes and so many people, but if you're going to be an athlete versus just exercising, the athlete's mindset comes with intention, clarity, and purpose. And it sounds to me here that this is another example of somebody who, despite having athletic talents, is training, is not training, is actually exercising. If you're just out doing what you know how to do day in after day out, and you're just repeating and just adding volume without clarity, intent, and purpose, you're not training, you're exercising. If you don't take recovery weeks and have phases of training and understand the flow and the dynamics of what your body needs, you're exercising, you're not training. And if you lack the data and knowledge to make sure that the limited training time you have is the most effective use of your time, you're exercising, you're not training. And if you're not listening to your body and knowing that it needs recovery and have the confidence and the discipline and the commitment to your future outcomes to allow yourself to take some time off, to take a day off every week, maybe even two days off every week or a recovery week here and there where you take three days off maybe because running is a huge pounding on the body, you're exercising, you're not training. You're exercising, not training, when you just go out and do. But when, you are, when, you, are, when you're, you are an athlete, it means you're living it, you're understanding it, you're doing it with clarity, purpose, and intention. What is the intention of my training this week? What is the intention of my um, intervals and long run, and how does it fit into the bigger picture of what I want to accomplish this month? And in this training phase, and where am I building in recovery and sleep and regeneration and rebuilding so that I can come back into the next training phase even stronger, better, smarter. Having absorbed the previous work and therefore creating a new platform and new speeds so that I'm not stuck at 745 pace with an average heart rate of 125 all year round. Instead, I want that to go to 705, to 650s. And I am approaching 50 years old and I am still able to get back to those paces I used to run because I go through this training with intent, purpose, and clarity. Intention on each workout, on the purpose of the workout, and the clarity of how it fits into the bigger picture. Training versus exercising. So back to Eric's email here. Any thoughts or advice would be great. One, get tested. Two, look at your plan to see if you've been taking recovery and weeks off and days off every week. Three, are you training or are you exercising? Do you have clarity, intent, and purpose around each workout and how it fits into the bigger picture and who you want to be at the end of this month, at the end of the uh, spring and going into Badwater, how you envision to be doing what you wanna be doing at what paces, and how are you doing that today that carries into that future outcome and vision? That's being an athlete. That's training versus exercising. And so many overlook that training also includes full rest, stop, done, nothing, sleep, eat, do nothing for a couple of days. It becomes so very important. So yeah, I think I answered that email in plenty of depth. I might just do all email questions this week because, uh, A, there's a variety that have um, been left unanswered, but also because they give me a broad spectrum of different things to talk about and dive into. So, um, Hi Chris, many thanks for all the wonderful information, catching up on old podcasts, on my hour ride to work, um, two hours of eight coaching a day, I like it. Um, Some questions. So these are more triathlon specific. One, should triathletes without a swim background learn to use um, flip turns in workouts? Do they have to? No, absolutely not. And again, this is a great um, example of where any masters or swim coach will try to turn you into a swimmer versus a triathlete that needs to get through the swim portion of a triathlon. The one thing that I want you all to be aware of, and again, my opinions, the way I coach, is the swim is a means to an end, as is the bike, but in a different focus and format. Because on the bike, it's such a majority of the time of the event, total event, that the fitter and stronger and smoother, we can do that using the least amount of energy to get from point A, T1 to T2, um, the better, so forth. But swimming... Some people have said, oh, it's just a warm up. No, it's not just a warm up. It is important when it comes to triathlon and actually doing it effectively. But it is also not something that proportionately with the time spent to train for it is the best use of our limited training time. And so again, athletes mindset, how we want to go about it, training versus exercise. This is what I will constantly bring up because it's become more and more a theme of what I talk about and how I go about all this coaching aspect is what is the maximum use of our limited training time for swimming? Well, one, it is to set swim the proper sets and patterns and workouts so that we are getting better in the pool. And that means more efficient to get through a 1.2 mile or 2.4 mile swim. So the hardest part there is frequency. So in the beginning, I would highly recommend that we swim more three, four times a week of two to 3,000 yards. And as we get more comfortable and fit around those two, 3,000 yards, then dial it back to two, three times a week of three to 4,000 yards. Um, I always, always prefer to see three times a week of three to 4,000 yards. I think that's a minimum for an Ironman triathlete. I think for a half Ironman triathlete, I think the minimum is three times a week of 3,000 yards, um, right around there. Um, Swimming is, again, something that we want to be efficient at and get through with using little energy but not wasting a ton of time and energy to be effective on the bike. As I wrote, um, an ultra-endurance athlete this week because he was skipping a lot of his swims and not getting to it and putting a priority towards it, I wrote, but swimming and the intended workouts are a big part of you being an athlete versus just exercising. See, I use that for everybody. You chose a three-sport event, not two sports with an occasional swim. If you plan to take your athletic growth seriously, you take swimming, which is the only vehicle in a triathlon to get to the bike and run, right? You have to get through a swim. And so not taking the swim as seriously as the other two means that we are already taking a component of the sport we are doing not seriously. So to explain that differently, subconsciously, if we're not focused on all three parts of the triathlon, we are surely not going to be successful in triathlon, in our outcomes, in our desired potential best athletic version of ourselves, because we're leaving out a piece of it. And the fact that it's the entry piece, it's what starts our day, it sets our mind, it sets our framework, it sets our intentions, it sets our future outcomes for that half Ironman or Ironman for the day. It is very important to take that component seriously. Now, the other part of this is that I totally understand that we have to drive to a pool, swim, drive back, and that the time use is not very effective. And so I don't want us freaking out about the swim as in doing too much of it. Like some training plans and coaches have it, you doing four, five, six swims a week. No, totally not necessary. Because for a 35 to 45 minute swim or for an hour and 20 to hour and 30 minute swim for an Ironman, you know, if you swim a lot that season, you might gain five or seven minutes in an Ironman swim. If you swim a lot that season, you might gain two to three to four minutes in a half Ironman swim. If you're a sub 30 Ironman, half Ironman swimmer and a sub 110 half Ironman swimmer, again, time vested versus what you're gonna gain is a minute here or there. And I want you spending that time on the bike and the run for sure. But we need to stay committed to the basic skeletal structure of what triathlon is. And that is two, three swims a week minimum, ideally three swims a week. I think if you're swimming three times a week, you're staying connected to your stroke, your form, your pull, your feel for the water, and again, your efficiency and economy in using those muscle groups. Long way to answer that question (laughs) Um, or that first part of the question, actually. Two, swim training in general. You talk a lot about not using a watch in the water and feel. How do you test for swim fitness? How do you know what zones you're in? There are no zones for swimming. Um, I find that for most people that becomes a bit too confusing and unless you are a very very good swimmer that you have a variety of different swim speeds and can really feel the different intensities and paces and Interval speeds, it's hard to relate to what that means. So, first of all, heart rate zones in the water are completely out the window because they are different than bike and run. It's the only sport in the world, in the world, that you hold your breath in order to do a threshold event. And so, that is very complicated when it comes to heart rate zones and training for it. That's why swimmers are their own weird breed of animal Um, but that being said um, you should have three speeds in swimming you should really work to find and spend time in the pool intentional clarity purpose right on having an easy speed that is very comfortable where you can basically swim the entire half Ironman or Ironman distance that it means your go all day swim pace effort which means about an hour long, that if you jumped into the pool today or into a lake and could swim in a lake, let's say 45, 50 minutes straight without stopping and rolling on your back and swimming backstroke or stopping and swimming through best stroke strokes or stopping and just catching your breath, what would the effort require, even if it's in a wetsuit, for you to continuously swim for an hour? That's your easy then you should have a moderate moderate is usually just what most people apply in the pool um, it's a solid effort it feels like work they're pushing their effort due to using their legs and their arms and it requires oxygen consumption and all that and so it's usually a solid pool effort and then fast or hard or digging deep That's something, a pace you really can only hold for 100, 75, 50-ish, but nothing faster. If you took out a 200 or a 400 at that pace, you'd blow up. You'd have to stop at the wall and gasp for air. That's fast. So clear differences in that easy swim for an hour pace, your regular pool pace, and your very fast pool pace where you're basically only trying to make four lengths. And so, or four-ish lengths. And so if you have those three speeds, that's pretty good. Now, the part that most people struggle with with swimming is exactly that, what I keep saying, is because they're using big muscles and keeping themselves afloat with their kick, which is usually very ineffective. Their toes aren't pointed to the other end of the pool, and therefore they're kicking using a lot of muscle power and energy, but it's not really getting them forward because their feet are pointing to the bottom of the pool, which means it's a 90 degree angle, which means they're not displacing any water, which means they're sinking. So wasted oxygen. And they're pulling on the water wrong, so they're still using their big shoulder muscles, shoulder, um, back muscles, and arm muscles without pulling effectively to get to the other end of the pool. And again, using a lot of oxygen. In most cases, newer swimmers in the pool struggle with running out of breath. And so it's important to breathe every stroke, not every third, not every fourth, not every fifth, because you already need as much oxygen as you can. And getting efficient with swimming is all about having enough oxygen. Once the race begins and there's craziness and there's a couple of hundred people around you, even dozens of people around you if it's a wave start and you're in open water or in the pool or an ocean or a lake, it becomes crazy. And so you're already short of breath. Now you're going to jump into breathing every third or fourth or fifth. I always say breathe every stroke. Now, of course, if you have the ability, every stroke, by the way, means every other, you know, breathing to one side only that you're comfortable with. Um, Now, if you're going to be in an environment where you have to breathe to the other side occasionally, of course, you can do some drills every swim practice to make sure you're still familiar and able to breathe to the other side. But when you're in your rhythm of swimming, you should be breathing to the side that you're comfortable with and getting as much oxygen as you can. And in most of my swim practices for my athletes, I have you do breathing patterns later in the workout anyway, to slow you down, use less oxygen because of the slower pace, but then breathing every fifth or seventh to work on your oxygen uptake and your ability to hold your breath while swimming. So we address that either way, but with a specific purposeful outcome there versus just randomly swimming like that for the entire workout. So there are no zones in swimming, and I want you to swim by feel. And as you look at the clock, usually there's a pace clock on a wall at a pool, and if there's not, you can put your own watch on the side of the deck and so that you'll only see the pace as in a stopwatch or a minute timer just continuing to run, not Garmin with all the data and all that and what you're swimming. You want to know what you're swimming based off of how you're trying to hit the wall by achieving a certain time. What that means is I want you to be able to hit the wall while you're swimming, look up and see you swim a 130 or 145, not swim and hope at the wall that you, what might I be swimming? And Garmin swim watches often put you into that unfamiliarity of what pace you're swimming and you're just getting feedback. You're not directing the pace and the sensation and what you're looking for. I don't like and again my opinions but I don't like swim watches I mean it distracts you from the work you should be doing it distracts you from understanding your paces and feel for the water it distracts you from what your pace is per 100 per 200 for 400 for 500 to negative split all those things if you don't look how know how to look at a clock pace clock how are you negative splitting other than by feel which I If you're doing the true negative split, you see the time at the 200 of a 400, and then you swim the second 200 faster. But in order to do that, you have to see the time. There'll be times you want a negative split on feel, but again, you're familiar enough with your feel and your paces that you know you're actually doing it properly, how easy you need to start. And it's very similar to running, understanding your running paces, understanding how you need to run and stride and put in effort to keep things under control early in your runs, late in your runs, surges, things like that. Um, How do you test for swim fitness? Swim fitness is one of those things where there are a variety of ways to test for swim fitness and you can even do blood lactate. Um, But again, that's way above the pay grade needed for triathlon. Um, I think doing things like eight one hundreds, late in a workout with short rest. So you find your interval, not looking at your garment and giving your five seconds rest. Because as I described in a previous swim podcast, if on the first one you come in at 138 and the second one at 143 and the third one at 147 and the fifth one at 145 well then your pace is different on each one of them and you're still rewarding yourself with five or ten seconds rest whereas you should be pushing off the wall on 145 and if you come in at 135 you get your 10 seconds rest if you don't you get less rest and it'll teach you to tune in and to um um, hone in on what your pace is and if you notice after three four five times of those hundreds or after doing this set a few times four 100 one hundred, three 100 100 eight 100 whatever that your actual interval needs to be 150 because eventually you drop from 138 to 143 and you're losing rest and you'd rather start with on a 150 pace or interval versus 145 well then You're learning that that's way more valuable for your swimming down the road of understanding that than it is just swimming at random times. And earlier I might have said we shouldn't take swimming so importantly, but in order to improve it, we have to be able to measure it. And that's why I'm giving you this. The interval pace is way more important than testing. Knowing that you're getting fitter when you swim 8-100, for example. And now you can hold 145 pace, interval push-off, and you're coming in after each 100 at 133, 135. That's better than when you started 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks ago when you were coming in at 143 or 145 and you had to go 8-100s on two minutes because in order to get 10 to 12-second rest. Well, that's measurable improvement and so that's the part where you want to be paying attention and a garmin watch yeah i can tell you your average pace and all this but again it's not the same as learning to feel the water and the pace that you need to swim it's not as valuable as being able to run eight minute miles comfortably off the bike and know what that feels like without looking at it so that you can contain yourself and maintain efficiency there and eat and hydrate and then therefore when the bigger miles come together 10 12 13 miles off the bike 15 16 17 miles off the bike you have learned how to feel what you need to be running and get better at it versus going by a pace or going by a heart rate which is usually invalid late in a race situation anyway that's a discussion for a different day but third extending a season if you complete your a race and you want to make the most of your fitness at that level is it possible or advisable to extend the season i just talked about that perfect example training for an ironman and then attempting something different like a 50k six to eight weeks after your ironman race well (laughs) example i'm asking for a friend um (laughs) example training for no (laughs) that's not really the best approach And so here's a specific approach, which is good. It will take you, unless you are crazy pro triathlete fit, to it will take you four-ish weeks to get your true legs back and physiology back after an Ironman. You might feel good walking around. You might feel good with some easy workouts, but there's nothing of depth there. And you will quickly fizzle out if you ask your body to do too much over any period of time in those four-ish, for some even six, but usually four-ish weeks after an Ironman. So now you're not really prepared for a 50K, which remember, as we've talked about, is a five to six hour run, if not longer um, for most versus what you think of, oh, a 26.2 mile run run after an iron man which is a four to five hour run so you're getting ready for a longer run on more difficult terrain with steeper and rollers and inclines and stuff like that it requires preparing for it and to just tag on tackle tag on to fitness like that that's great um it's great in a, in the thought process but it's not great in execution Because the value of your 50K will be diminished. You won't feel good. You won't enjoy it. It won't feel as much of an accomplishment because you didn't really build up a true training for it like I talked about earlier. And it also leads to you after that 50K just being completely burned out and tired and flat and like I'm done for the season. Whereas a proper build for it and proper um, prep for it and proper um, intentional training for it allows you to take that 50k feel really good about doing it the outcome if you love the endurance running and have a positive experience that maybe for next year you time or do your season a little bit differently and add a 50 mile or do two 50ks or prepare your season differently and so yeah that answers that so i hope that helps those were a lot of questions in that one email so We'll dive into it next. All right, let's make this one of the final emails of the morning. We are at 50 minutes and I have a few more things to discuss. Um, good afternoon, Chris. Just wrapped up listening to the latest Ritual podcast with you and Rich a while back. You guys asked for questions via Facebook. His didn't get on. My guess is you answered it on a weekly word podcast and I've missed it. Not really. I didn't really carry too many of those questions over to the Weekly Word podcast because I have plenty of them to answer here. So I'm a beginner swimmer. I can do some 50s to 100s without breaks. I want to improve and ultimately join a master's swim program. Talked a fair amount about swimming earlier. So I hope some of those things improve or help you improve. What is the best way to make improvement? Yeah, I answered some of that. What is the proper etiquette for beginning in a master's program? any tips are appreciated. Well, this brings me to something I wanted to talk about today. And um, it ties into something I read um, somewhere. I think Seth Godin's uh, blog is always where I, I I read it every morning. There's some great little tidbits and posts in there. But I think this applies to something that came up that I saw a couple of weeks ago. Um, trying to remember now and now I'm a little distracted. But What is the proper etiquette for beginning in a master's program? So first off, join a master swim program. That's why it is a master swim program. Most of those swim programs, I would say all of them, many of the swimmers in it are new. They've never swum before and they're getting into swimming in an organized fashion later in life and they require a lot of instruction. And don't get me wrong, there's swim programs and master swim programs where they're not very welcoming it's intimidating with a bunch of former swimmers in a bunch of lanes i understand that and then there's others where it's just coached by someone who isn't really a swimmer or really has the coaching experience and is just standing there handing out sets and writing them on a board and basically filling the time and it doesn't make you feel less intimidated let alone like you're learning anything so i get that but You only find out if you have a gem of a coach and a gem of an instructor by going and joining a master swim team. And if that doesn't work out, try another one. Oftentimes in big cities, there's a variety of different ones, and hopefully you will find one that is effective and helps you swim. And even if you don't find one that's welcoming and warm and um, does what you need it to do in the perfect world, going to something structured and organized and just you doing your own thing it's massive swimming you can do what you want i mean you should stick to the sets and the training plan that they put up there but you can go in your own lane and do what you want and take your time and if you don't swim very well you don't swim very well but you can It's Masters, you should be able to go at your pace and work on the things you wanna work on. If not, then you're in a really bad program because again, Masters is about having fun, getting familiar with the water, um, using it as an alternative form of exercise um, and it shouldn't be this aggro, everybody goes fast. The Masters program, I'm a part of, yeah, we have some really fast guys. Like it's remarkable to me how on some mornings I'm probably, and I'd like to say I'm a pretty good swimmer, but I'm probably the third or fourth best swimmer in the lane, in the, po- in the group of lanes that we're in. And we're about you know, 25, 30 really fast swimmers in that group. And yeah, I'm always sort of humbled. I mean, I'm getting older, but I'm humbled by the speed in those lanes. And those guys are not like just out of college, they're older too. So it is that's fun for me because I like the camaraderie and the pushing and the effort and the, the smack talk but we have 18 lanes. I know it's California, it's outdoor pools. It's fun, plenty of space. Every high school has a pretty decent pool, especially in Marin County. So we have 18 lanes, the, the lower lanes, complete beginners. And they get a lot of coaching and input and insight from the teachers, the coaches on deck. And for us, the swimmer swimmers, we don't need coaching. We don't need instruction. We don't, so they, I, I would like to see the coaches spend time at the other end of the pool with those swimmers because they need it. And like I always say, the swimmers who are just beginning are the ones with um, the most potential. Us swimmers, swimmers, those of us who've been swimming all our lives and already are fast, we're not going to improve. Actually, we're going to Slow down more and more over the next few years. Whereas the swimmers with the most potential, they're gonna, they still have a potential to speed up, to hit the fastest times of their lives. I will never ever hit the fastest times of my life again. No way, no how, impossible. And for those of you starting out with swimming, I'm stoked for you because you can still improve. You can still get better every day and hit the fastest swim times of your life. Anyway. But it also brought me to this post. And part of what why we want to go into master swimming and get out of it what we want to in order for us to become better. It's not about what other people think of us. It's about learning a new skill and getting more comfortable with it and feeling good in our own skin about being uncomfortable and learning. And what this post is at some point, grown ups get tired of the feeling that accompanies growth and learning. We start calling that feeling incompetence. We're not good at the new software. We resist brainstorming session for a new way to solve a problem. We we never did bother to learn to juggle. Not because we didn't want the outcomes, but because the journey promises to be difficult. Difficult in the sense that we'll feel incompetent which accompanies all growth. First, we realize something can be done, in this case, learning how to swim. Then we realize we can't do it, in this case, swimming. And finally, we get better at it. It's the second step that messes with us. If you care enough to make a difference, if you care enough to get better, you should care enough to experience incompetence again. And I think that captures it from Seth, again, about how learning in this whole world that we're in with regards to being an athlete again, or being an athlete for the first time, and the mindset, and training versus exercise, and not wanting to test ourselves and measure ourselves, it's all about us feeling insecure, and being incompetent, not being automatically good and we're back into those childhood days of like worrying about not being picked for kickball and stuff like that I get it but the beauty of us we have a choice every day and we choose to do these sports we choose to do something on the outer boundary of what we deemed was possible and in order to get there we have to be incompetent at it for a while we have to make a commitment to get better at it. First, we realize something can be done. All of this in the endurance space is about realizing something can, we can do something on the outer boundary of what we deemed was possible. And then we realize we can't do it now, currently, who we are in this current version of ourselves. But then, because of training, not exercise because of training intention purpose clarity we can get to a point that we finally get better at it and we can do that what we had intended to do so masters swimming with its intimidation aspect and getting to a pool where there's some fast looking swimmers and they all look fit and wearing swimmer clothes and swimsuits and goggles and gear and all that yes it's intimidating but you walking through those doors you walking on that pool deck and making an intentional um move towards getting better and realizing yeah i'm fine with being incompetent because guess what i guarantee you there's fields and things that you know and the world that you went pro in that most of the people on that pool deck aren't as competent as you are in and they are incompetent, and they need to go through hoops and learn and be uncomfortable to achieve what you already are competent in. We all have those places, and that's the beauty of being an athlete. The beauty of the athlete's mindset and being an athlete is that you care enough to make a difference to achieve your desired outcomes, and if you care enough to get better, day by day, day after day, a little bit better today than yesterday and so forth. You should care enough to experience incompetence again. Care enough to be uncomfortable again. Care enough to have to listen and learn again. Care enough to be um, to trust and be disciplined and committed towards the long range outcome. Care enough, as I like to always say, to Manage your impulses long enough to avoid getting in your own way, right? That is what it is. Willpower is mastering the tension of not getting what we want in the current moment. Let me repeat that. Willpower is mastering the tension of not getting what we want in the moment. And so that's what it is. We are incompetent now. We want to master it now. But willpower gets us through that incompetent phase, incompetent um, feeling and time. So, John, I hope that helps. I'm not sure if I answered all your questions ideally or the way you wanted to, but um, it was important to bring that up. Thanks. Once again, we are two hours in. And (laughs) thank you so much for listening. And I am 99 episodes into this Weekly Word podcast, and it's been just such a cool experience, such a um, growing experience to see how uh, it's migrated from uh, or transformed, not migrated, transformed from um, what I originally had intended it to be to just sharing as much as I can uh doing as much as i can to make the endurance world and ultra endurance world in our busy world um, more approachable more accessible and also to live this one life this one life we have this one precious life we have um, with more intention and purpose and clarity right just like i talked about earlier with regards to clarification of purpose and and the athlete's mindset So thank you for listening. Thank you for being there for a lot of the episodes, maybe even all of the episodes or just a few of the episodes. Um, You're here with me and I hope um, I can provide some value and some growth and some learning um, for you every week on this podcast because that's what it's all about. We're all learning. We're all growing. We're all in a mindset of accumulating more wisdom and knowledge and maturity and perspective, and at the end of the day, um, in order to tackle this thing called life a little bit easier for all of us. So thank you for listening. I really appreciate appreciate all of you. From what started with just my athletes listening to it growing way beyond that, and thank you, thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, some big announcements and some exciting uh, things happening next week on episode 100 of the Weekly Word Podcast. Have a great week, everybody.